Let's turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 4. As you know, we have started a, uh, several months ago uh, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs, and uh, we now have learned um, a lot of fundamental things. You know, we're still in the introduction or ch- introductory chapters. The book of Proverbs itself doesn't really start to chapter 8, but uh, we have been defining a lot of things. We have been getting a lot of good, solid material for our own personal life. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about, as the book of Proverbs has been focusing on, you know, getting wisdom, uh, God's wisdom, getting understanding from God, and then learning how to hang on to it and keep it. And that's, you know, really what we've been focusing on. And last week, we, we, we saw the process to do that, how to attain it, how to get it. And uh, I showed you the, the building blocks of spiritual maturity. Everybody here should be in a building program. You know, the first thing pastors do when they get a church, you know, they want to get into some kind of building program and keep the church motivated. Um, And a lot of times uh, the facility they have is just fine, but they're taught today that if you really want to build a church, you know, get the people committed and get them involved in a building program uh, and everybody will unify around that. And uh, they have all kinds of tricks to do that. Uh, I was associated with a church one time where they, um, they wanted uh, uh, to build a new building. And um, the pastor was asking every family to give like $2,000, you know. And we got 100 families, you know. That's, that's a pretty chunk of money to put down on a building. And uh, he used every trick in the book. You know, one Sunday he had all the little kids come in with their pennies and put them in a jar in front of the whole church, like, well, if the kids are doing what they can do, what are you going to do, you know, kind of put that guilt trip on you. Then he got the, this was all taught in Bible college, then he got the tactic where he put a big shine up in the thing of, of all, the, all the families that had given $2,000. Well, obviously, when you put a shine up that says all the families give $2,000, you'd draw attention to the families that didn't give $2,000, and that's a little gentle pressure on it. Now, I'm, I'm into building programs. I really am. And uh, the moment we started our church, I started a building program. Amen. And that building program is to build you to be spiritually mature. Amen. I'm not worried about the building. I love this place. It's got nice colored stained ceilings and uh, uh, the carpet is great. I love it. Uh, I don't walk under your bare feet. Your feet will fall off the next day. But it's, uh, I, I love this place. It's everything I could ever want. And worst case scenario, you know, if a tornado ever comes through Independence, we don't have to move if we're in a church service. We're good to go. And, uh, you know, a real, a real church should have a building program and should be constantly involved in one. And it should be the building program of building people. That's the only building program that, uh, that you need to be continuously in. I'm not saying there isn't a time that you've got to build a building. But uh, it's a thing where... Uh, you got to build people first, and that's the key. And I showed you the building blocks last week of spiritual maturity, uh, building Bible principles uh, on the foundation that uh, you lay the day that you got saved. And I told you how that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 said that the foundation uh, that when you got saved was Jesus Christ. I showed you from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, how you do that. Uh, you know, he talks about line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And I showed you the analogy back there. Uh, the analogy back there is like laying bricks on a foundation. In fact, uh, uh, you know, 
Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tells us that the invisible things that we can't see are clearly understood by the things that, that God makes. And everything in life is a picture of something if you just understand the Bible enough. And, you know, when, when you build a wall, as I told you last week, you have to lay a foundation. And when you lay a foundation, you know, you, then you start building blocks on that wall. And I showed you how that, that's a picture spiritually of your body being the temple of God. Each one of those building blocks represents a Bible doctrine. And when you go through discipleship or discipleship two or like this coming Thursday night when we start the structure of the Bible, you're going to get some major doctrines that you can put on your foundation that's going to really help you understand the Scriptures and how it all kind of comes together. But, it, but then I told you how that when you lay those bricks on a wall, if you ever saw a brick wall, they're not, they're not lined up exactly on top of each other. They're set off with, with in the middle. That, that all ties them all together. After my sermon last week, several of the guys who are builders and much, know much more about it than I do came up and said, and, and gave me a little more insight on it. Uh, Steve Brackeen told me that, uh, that when you build a wall, you put up a seven courses of brick. And then in the building mindset, that seven courses of bricks, they consider that a freestanding wall. It's, 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 it's ready to go. And then you, in, in their building mindset, then the eighth level that you put on it is the new beginning of the next seven, and then that is a self-sustaining wall. And so what he was saying is, is that, uh, uh, that every seven courses of bricks form a self-sustaining wall, and then the eighth course forms another self-sustaining wall of seven, and by the time you're done, you may have eight or nine courses of series of sevens that, that tie that wall all together. And that's incredible because that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible does the exact same thing. You've heard me talk about it many, many times. In the Bible, uh, you have the seven judgments. You have the seven mysteries. You have seven resurrections. You have a series of sevens throughout the Bible that when you build on that foundation, you build them as series of sevens, but when you're done, they're independent of themselves, and then you build the next course of sevens on top of them, and pretty soon, they all interlock together, and your temple is strong, and the line keeps it, you know, uh, keeps you from getting, uh, you know, off course with the thing, and when you lay down a line of bricks, they call it a course. That course of bricks is, in our life, we talk about the course of life. Uh, We talk about that line that keeps everything straight. And yet in our own personal life, we talk about, as, as Baptists, we have a heritage. Our line goes back to a biblical line to Antioch. It's what keeps us straight. All of those things together is a tremendous, tremendous picture of how things uh, work in the Bible. And that's why in Isaiah 28, he used that analogy of laying blocks and keeping the wall straight. Now today, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. And again, uh, we'll see the benefits of getting God's wisdom and understanding, uh, and along with that, the value of keeping it. Now, let's read Proverbs chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. It says, Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Now, Father, help us today to learn from your word, to grow from your word, and take all of the things that you have for us And, Lord, put them into our life today. We thank you for those that made it out today and pray your blessings upon all that we try to learn for thee. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verse 8. 
Verse 8 says, exalt her. And that, of course, will be wisdom and understanding. Now, that means uh, putting the Word of God, number one, in your life first. Simply knowing the Bible at time in your life, getting to the place in your life that you know the Bible better than anything else that you do. It says, exalt her, and she will promote thee. Now, if you like to do word studies in the Bible, one of the great word studies in the Bible to study is the word promote or promotion. And it's only found a few times in the Bible. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 75, verses 6 and 7, it says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. And then verse, uh, 67 sa- uh, verse 7 says, But God is the judge. And what God does there is he, he gives you three directions, three points on a compass. He gives you east, he gives you west, and he gives you south. But then he puts himself in the place of north. And, of course, we know from the Bible that the Bible talks about heaven being north. It talks about the sides of the north in Psalms chapter 48. It talks about he stretches out the uh, north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing in Job chapter 26. So we know what it represents. And it represents the fact that there's a day coming that you and I are going to get the ultimate promotion. Now, I got to say this, too. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 35, the Bible says fools get a promotion. And that's a great study in the Bible. The Bible says that they get promoted to shame. And you may wonder how does somebody, that would sound like a demotion. Uh, but it's not. It's in the Bible doctrine, it's a promotion. Great study in the Bible. I don't have time to get into it today, but it's a great study. I've always enjoyed the Salvation Army uh, uh, from one aspect of it is I used to read, get a chance to read their, their newspapers and when an old Salvation Army uh, saint went home to be with the Lord, they always had a section and that section was always called Promoted to Glory. I always thought that was really neat uh, that they did that. And as you grow and become spiritually mature and you learn uh, to exalt the wisdom of God and the understanding of God. You do that through his book. You do that instead of correcting and tearing the word of God apart like we talked about Thursday night. You make it the number one thing in your life and you go through life uh, in a series of basically spiritual promotions. You know, in the army, when you come out of basic, they don't make you a sergeant. Uh, You have to go through something in the military they call time and grade. And it simply means in its simplest form that you have to spend some time before you can make the grade, a rank being the grade. And they know that the longer you spend uh, in the military, the more you're going to understand how the military operates. The military is a very complicated thing. I mean, it seems like it's nothing, uh, just the Army. But the structure internally of how it works is incredibly massive. And, you know, when you get into small group uh, operations, whether you have squads or you have companies, there's a very complicated format that it needs to follow. The Navy is even more exact than the the Army because they 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 both have it, but they have a, a, a regulation handbook that you have to go by the regulations. You don't just get in the Army or the Navy and do whatever you want to do. The term, by the book, started in the military uh, in that sense because there's regulations that you have to follow. You, have, you just can't look at a situation and say, well, this is what I'm going to do because I'm the sergeant. You've got to understand the regulation behind it. It's much like the Bible. The Bible is our handbook. It's our book of regulations. 
And just as a guy getting out of basic doesn't understand the regulations, he has to put in the time to get the grade, and in that time he learns the regulations that he can make the decisions based on it. In the ministry, in the church, it's the same concept. Our book of regulations is the Word of God. And when you spend the time here growing and learning those principles and the regulations in time, then you come up to through the grade and you get promotion spiritually, just like they get them in the military. You go from a private to a corporal to a sergeant to a, a staff sergeant and right up the line. And then if you're really lucky and really good, you get a battlefield commission and you become, you become an officer. It's the same way in, 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 in the ministry, exactly the same way. This is why when some of you come in, you just get saved in our church and maybe you just come out of the world and you got saved and you're a baby Christian. Some of you have been in churches for a while and you've been around and you're a Christian, but you just never really had a chance to grow. Well, when you come into a place like this, you have that opportunity. And you, you actually watch the spiritual promotions. Uh, if you're looking at it, I see it all the time in your life. I see it to the place that, you know, the first thing you do, as we talked about last week, is you get discipled. And you get discipled, and then uh, you go through those 10 lessons, and you get a fundamental grasp on the principles, the regulations. And down the line, shortly thereafter, we'll allow you to disciple somebody yourself. You see, that's a promotion. Some of you get into prayer groups. And when you get into prayer groups, you sit there and you watch the person who's running the prayer groups. And how many of you, after two or three times in a prayer group, have come to me and said, Bob, do you think I'm ready to take a prayer group? And I say, absolutely. That's a promotion, see? Some of you come in here and you, you, you do things well and you grow and you get into the Bible and you really buy into the ministry and you prove yourself. And so down the line someplace, you become, you become a, a deacon, or you become an elder, you become, uh, you put in the time, but those are the concepts I'm talking about of spiritual promotions. The chance of going over here to this rest home and, and being able to put together uh, a team and for some of you young guys to go in and, and uh, that's where I started preaching many, many, many years ago. And uh, you learn how to deal with all kinds of things. My wife was in a rest home preaching one time, and we were preaching someplace, and it was a bunch of old... She was with me. I was preaching there. She wasn't in it. And you got to learn how to deal with it. Right in the front row, a woman had a sucker in her mouth. Remember that? She had a sucker in her mouth, and she was sucking on the sucker, and I was fired, you know. And, but it come off the stick and got stuck in her throat. So I'm, she's in the front row. This is not a true story. She's in the front row. She's gagging, <laughs> turning blue. The nurses are working on her, and I just keep on preaching. I mean, that's what you got to do, see? But there's things like that help you get your feet on the ground. It helps you learn in a very basic mode. It's the entry level. And yet it's good for you older guys because, you know, to bring some young guy along. It's good for the girls because there's no reason why you can't hold Bible studies with some of them ladies over there once we get our feet on the ground. It's an open door. We go through. We see what the opportunities are, just like we did at Restart and Turnaround. Sometimes they work out for us like, the, like they do for us. Sometimes they don't, like the trailer park didn't quite work out the way we wanted. Bob praying about going to be a missionary to trailer parks after that experience. But it was, a, it was incredible. <laughs> An incredible situation. But that's what it says here, you see. You exalt her. You put it number one in your life. You make the Bible, the ministry, our church, 
the things of God number one in your life, and it promotes you. It brings you up through the stages of spiritual maturity. Now, look at the last part of that verse. And uh, it says, She shall bring thee honor when thou dost embrace her. Now, the Bible uh, talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 20 and 21, it, it talks about God having vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. It says in that verse, in verse 20, but in a great house, that's talking about the house of God, but in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, that means set apart, uh, to meet for the master's use and prepared uh, unto every good work. Now that verse clearly says that there's going to be people who God, for God, become a vessel of honor. They grow, they get spiritually mature, God promotes them up through it, and where you walk in the door of a church or this church, one day, five years later, you're a leader in the church. You're actually doing things that you had no idea what was going on the day you walked in. But see, through the process of promotion, time and grade, spending the time, learning the regulations, learning the book, learning all it does, God brings you up through those things, and you know uh, you, get, you get promoted through them and you become a vessel of honor. And when you embrace wisdom and understanding, it brings you honor in two aspects of your life. And I want you to understand this. First of all, it's in the life now. People will see your life. This happens all the time in our church. People see your life, and they see the difference in your life. You maybe work with them. You maybe, uh, you know, uh, have a relationship with them, and, and they see your family. They see your life. They see that it's different, and it's what they want. They see the camaraderie that you, that you have uh, and with, with other people, and you see God using you, and they, you talk about the things that you do for the Lord, and they desperately want that. And they'll see that may, they have some issues in their life, their marriage or their family, and they see your life and your marriage and your family doing very well. And they want that. So they seek you out. They, they, they come to you. They see in your life, in your relationship with the Lord, what they really want. And they, they see the difference that God has made in your life. I don't know how many times, you know, that has happened over and over and over again with, with people uh, in our church who have really committed themselves to the things of the Lord and have their families lined up and have their marriages where it needs to be. And people, I mean, this world, you know, is, is broken and busted. It's an, insane, it's an insane asylum run by the inmates for all practical purposes. But in spite of that, I'm telling you, there's people out there who want the truth. There's people out there who want the real deal. And when they see the real deal in your life, they know in an instant it's the real deal. And God will use that honor in your life. They'll seek you out. That's an honorable thing. I can't think of any greater honor in this life for a Christian to have is to have a testimony where on one hand people hate you to pieces and on the other hand they, they want everything that you've got. That is the greatest balance that you can have in your life. People seeking you out because of what God has done in your life. And the second aspect will simply be this, the honor you receive at the judgment seat of Christ. 
uh, from serving God down here and giving him the honor and glory down here so you, uh, uh, can, so you get it up there too. You get the honor of being used of God down here, but you get the honor at the judgment seat of Christ. This is what the Bible means in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Maybe you've always wondered about this verse where it says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. See, that's what that means. You get the honor down here of being used of God and people looking and seeing God in your life, but because you do what's right with it and you honestly take the honor that you have down here and turn it back to the Lord, that you get honored down here, but then at the judgment seat of Christ, you get honored there. It's a double honor based on laboring in the Word of God. Notice it says, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine. There's the key. That's the key. I mean, you get it down here, people see it in you, and then you, you, you get it again at the judgment seat of Christ for embracing wisdom and understanding and letting it use you as God sees fit to use you. And that's, a, 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 you know, a simply embracing wisdom and understanding, and in time, you're going to have the ability to answer two of life's biggest questions. And for you today as a Christian, even for an unsaved person, but certainly for a Christian, life's two biggest questions is simply this. What is God really doing in your life? And the second question is, and how am I a part of what God is doing? What is God doing and how am I a part of it? Those are the two basic fundamental questions that every child of God has to figure out. And when they figure it out, they only figure it out by embracing wisdom and understanding and let God take them and, and grow them up, promote them. And you get, just like I told you a little while ago, it takes probably five, six, seven years to understand the military, how it works, how it operates. And it probably takes you four, five, six years of, to understand how it all works with God. But you can get there. You can get there as fast as you want to get there. Now look at verse 9. She shall give thee to thy, uh, give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Now again, I want you to note the reference uh, to crowns and grace and glory that is connected uh, to your head. That's because 1 Corinthians 11.3 tells us that the head of every man needs to be Christ. Christ needs to be the head of our lives. That means... You know, it's an easy statement to say. What it means is that you get God's mind. You get the mind of Christ. You have the patterns of thought that are conducive to the principles in the Word of God. You think with your head. In other words, as a military man growing up, get time and grade, and he understands how he operates in the military by the military manual handbook, you and I as Christians grow up and get the time and grade, and we understand how we deal with these in life through our manual, the Word of God. You see, when Christ is the head of your life, you get wisdom and understanding, and that leads you to getting the understanding of God's grace in your life. And that's why he says he gives you your head an ornament of grace. And the first thing that you've got to get as a Christian for this ornament of grace is you've got to understand God's grace to you. That's the first aspect. And then you got, when you understand God's grace to you and you really understand it, It'll manifest itself in the second format that becomes an ornament of grace that, to your head. 
your thinking, and that is the grace that you show others. There's lots of Christians out there that have taken God's grace and wouldn't give an ounce of it to somebody else. You'll take it for you. You'll allow that grace to cover your stupidity, but you won't allow it to come by somebody else's stupidity. And that just comes back to show you that you don't understand the concept to begin with. You don't have that ornament of grace to your head. Your thinking patterns aren't, aren't built on the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you'll take the grace that God covers your mistakes with, but you'll not allow somebody else to make some mistakes and, uh, and give them the grace that, uh, uh, that God gave us. That's the problem. Now, look at the last part of verse 9. The last part of verse 9 says, A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Now this opens up, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time today, this opens up one of the greatest studies in all of the Bible on the crowns that are associated with the judgment seat of Christ. And when we came through First and Second Corinthians a while back, we laid out the judgment seat of Christ in every detail from First Corinthians chapter 3 and then again Second Corinthians chapter 5. And we, we saw that our eternal rewards basically come in two aspects. And this is very important that you understand this. These are two important Bible doctrines. We talk a lot about our inheritance, and you hear a lot about that today. Maybe not as much as you used to, but you hear it. And yet in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says that somebody at some point in time in the future can get, get denied the inheritance, their reign with Christ. Now, when you find your millennial inheritance in the Bible, or you find a reference to you getting an inheritance, or a reign with Christ, reign as a reign as a king, uh, that context is always going to be the millennial reign of Christ. Always will be. The thousand-year reign that we talked about, it's on our chart back there. Thousand-year reign. Well, we'll lay it out when we come through the pillars and we come through the... You'll completely understand these things when we're done on Thursday night. They'll be clear as a bell to you. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 20. You'll find it in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, the great eight chapters on the millennial reign of Christ when I preached that message back in chapter 47 a while back. In the book of Psalms, you know, the book of Psalms really falls into three formats from a doctrinal standpoint. The book of Psalms will show you Israel in the tribulation. It'll show you Israel at the second coming. And then a lot of the Psalms, like Psalm 106, 111, 112, 13, 135, 140, 147, 48, 49, 150, they're called the millennial Psalms. They all picture what takes place in the millennium. So when we talk about an inheritance, when we talk about you getting an inheritance or losing your inheritance, we're talking about your millennial inheritance. That time for a thousand years you're going to reign with Christ for what you did or what you didn't do down here. Now, the second aspect to your, to your, uh, to your rewards will be the crowns. Now, the crowns will always be associated with the judgment seat of Christ. They're not really associated with the millennium. They're connected, but they're, they're, they're primarily dealing with the day uh, that we stand before Christ and give an account for what we did, which takes place right after the rapture of the church. And if you would come through the Bible, you would find that there are five crowns that are listed. And as I said, they're not really associated with the, with the millennium directly, but rather the, the, the day of Jesus Christ, which is the judgment seat. And you're going to find, and we're going to cover this when we get into it, and you'll completely understand this on Thursday night. 
There's two days in your Bible you need to fundamentally understand. One of them is going to be the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, wherever you find that in the Bible, will always be a reference to the second coming of Christ. And that's where your inheritance lies. The other day is the day of Jesus Christ. That'll always be the rapture of the church, and that'll always connect with the judgment seat of Christ, and that's where our crowns are associated. We'll lay all this out in great grand detail when we start coming through it. When we're done with this course, a lot of you young Christians are going to have a whole new appreciation and understanding of the Scriptures and the fundamental. It's going to move your time and grade up. You know, and that's what they do. <coughs> I say you have to go through time and grade but you can go through basic training, and after just a short period of time, you can sign up to go to NCO school. And NCO school is a, is a quick take that takes you from where you're at and, and is, a, is, is like a crash course of coming out as an NCO, and you can go through that and accelerate that process of time and grade. And just as you can do that in the military, you can do that with the Bible. And things like we're going to do this Thursday night are your NCO school. It'll accelerate a lot of things uh, in your life. Now, understanding these two concepts uh, and the ability to grasp them and their importance is something most Christians never get to. And all you got to do, if you got a Christian friend someplace, that it, uh, is ask them, uh, what about the five crowns? They won't have a clue what you're talking about. And uh, we, we, now here we are, uh, the, like I said, these five crowns are listed in your Bible and uh, they're based on, at, at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, what, you're going to, and, and what you're going to get them for and what they're going to represent. And uh, in, the most important thing to me on these that I saw years ago is not just the importance of understanding the crowns, but understand what those crowns represent in my relationship with Christ. That's what I want you to see today. Now, I'm going to walk you through these. Now, the first one's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 and 27. And this is called in the Bible the incorruptible crown. It says in that passage, And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means that I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now this crown deals, called an incorruptible crown, and it deals with separating ourselves from the world. We've talked a lot about the mixed multitude, the people that, that have one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world, and, uh, and in the world itself. You get this crown from understanding the doctrine of separation, and you stay away from those things. Notice he, in verse 25, he compares uh, a Christian to uh, the Roman Olympics. There's two things that Paul will always use as an analogy for what a Christian should be. It's somebody who's in the Olympic, and you've got to remember in his day, uh, especially in Corinth, that was the seat of the Roman Olympics at that particular point in time. So he uses that. The other thing that he uses is the military as a soldier, and that's based on the greatest military uh, the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire, uh, that Paul was seeing walking up and down uh, where he lived all the time. He understood that if he could get Christians to be as militant as the Roman Empire soldiers for God, and if he could get God's people to be as self-disciplined in their structure as somebody training for the Olympics, you'd, you'd have an incredible Christian. And that's exactly the analogy that he's making. And it's an incredible thing. 
And because to be an athlete, to be a good athlete, you have to have structure in your life. You have to have discipline in your life. You have to have self-discipline in your life. You have to be able to pass up on the ho-hos and the Twinkies when you know you're in training. And that can be tough sometimes. You have to pass up on the French fries or this or that, and you've got to know that there's things that you can't eat, there's things that you can't do. Verse 26 says, verse 26 says, I, I therefore so run not as uncertainty. So I fight I, uh, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. Now that right there in verse 26 is probably the state of 99.999% of God's people. They, uh, they run and everything they do in their Christian life with uncertainty. They don't know anything for sure. They don't know their Bible. They don't know anything about the Bible. Uh, everything they do, they run, and in, uh, they, they, they run and they live in uncertainty. They're fearful of everything. They don't stand up for nothing. And uh, it's all because of when it comes to the Bible and everything in the Bible and every issue in life, they're just uncertain how to deal with it. And that's what the ministry is. That's what building you is. It's getting you to be certain to, about the things that you have uh, in your life. Now, it says, verse 26, beat the air. And he says, I fight. He says, don't fight uh, like somebody who beats the air. That's throwing a punch without hitting anything. That's uh, that's a uh, that's a uh, uh, you know we use it uh, all the time in our in our world. Uh, we talk about somebody at basketball, you know, and he's out there and he shoots a shot up to the at the bucket and it's fifty miles off. What does everybody yell? Just do it like we do it at the ball game. Here we go. Ready? No, no, do it. Everybody. Here we go. I'll be the shot and he misses. You know, by I miss with my face. No, no, I made that one. Just a minute. <laughs> everybody goes. There you go. See. That means you took a shot at the basket and all you got was what? Air. When you hear somebody preach that he's not telling the truth or he's not very good, you just say he's full of hot what? Air. Now that's the problem today in preaching. People are, guys are standing up in the pulpit today preaching, but they're not saying anything. When you get into pulpit and preach, you better hit something. Your desire to get into the pulpit is to take a swing at some things and you better hit it. The problem with Christianity today is too many preachers are in the pulpit and they're saying stuff that didn't hit anybody. And, of course, that's, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. And then he says in verse 27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means that I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And that is talking about keeping your body uh, under the subjection of the Word of God. Simply living uh, the, the right life by the principles of God. Uh, and of course, we all know that the greatest damage to the cause of Christ is God's people who say they love God, say they serve God, but they live like the world. And whatever they say loses its punch, and they basically, in the eyes of the people, that they ought to be winning to Christ and out of having the honor like we talked about, they become a castaway. You see it all the time. If we don't uh, work, uh, you know, uh, if it doesn't work for you, that's what they think. They look at somebody else and say, well, if it doesn't work for them, why will it work for me? And it comes down to the consistency of a transformed life, of people seeing that not only do you believe the Word of God, but you live what you believe. Now, the second crown found in 2 Timothy 4, 8, and he says, for I am ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. For I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but 
unto all them that also that love his appearing. Now this is called the crown of righteousness. And this is the crown that we would get because we just in our hearts and our minds can't wait for the Lord to come back. Now you would think that this would be the easiest one to get. You would think that everybody who's saved would automatically chalk this one up. But it doesn't work that way. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. This is probably one of the hardest ones to get. Because there's too many other things out there that we love in this world that we don't, uh, that we don't want to give up. And uh, we don't want, because we don't want to give up, we don't, want, we don't want to leave this planet. You can see it when you start preaching on the second coming of Christ and you start preaching on this or start preaching on the Lord coming back and you got people out there to get that real sick, pale, green look in their face. They got things they don't want to leave. Now, I can be honest with you in one thing. I may lie to you in lots of things in life, but I can tell you about one thing I'll tell you the truth. I got no plans today, no matter what it may be, that I wouldn't chuck in 10 seconds if the Lord wanted to come pull me out of this mess. I got nothing here to hold me because I've learned that this life is nothing more than a veil of tears. This life is a source of my heartache. It's a source of my problems. It's a source of my struggles. And the thing that I'm going to love about heaven more than anything else in this whole wide world is the only thing I'm going to love about it more than anything is I'm finally going to be in a place that whatever I think and whatever I say and whatever I do, I know is going to please the Lord. Now, to me, that's heaven, see? But it's tough getting there. My Bible says, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Did you ever try to do that on a consistent basis? I mean, I, I tell you, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a tough thing to do. But the true mark of a spirit-filled, mature, saved Christian, uh, a child of God, is, is the coming to the place in your life that you're saved, and the more you're saved, the more you love God, the more you get promoted in the things, the more you see the real truth in things, the more God reveals to you out of His Word, the more you see what the real values are in life, and you come to the place after 40 or 50 years that you can't stand this world, and you see it's the source of all your problems, and you just can't wait to get out of this place. I know some of you can't get there yet. I'm not expecting you to. But you go through NCO school and get a battlefield commission a couple of times, and you'll, uh, you'll get an understanding of it. When I first got saved, I heard a guy preach one time. He said that uh, <coughs> he's preaching to us young men. I was just, a, just, a, just got into the aspect that God was calling me to preach. And he said, young men, he said, you young men out there, he said, if you ever get into ministry... He says, the battle you're going to get into is going to make all the battles of this world like kids shooting marbles. He says, if God ever calls you to preach and you ever get into the ministry, he says, the battle you're going to get into is going to make the battle of Bull Run and Chateau Ferry and Shiloh and World War I and Bellu Wood and Iwo Jima and Okinawa and the Normandy invasion look like just a bunch of old ladies playing knitting. You know, I didn't understand what he said back then. I was young. I was inexperienced. But, oh, about 45 years later, I got exactly what he was talking about. I understand. I get it. The most comfortable place right now in your life, the most comfortable place in your life right now ought to be in the church God puts you in getting fed the Word of God. You ought to learn to be comfortable in it even when the preacher preaches some things that make you uncomfortable. See? Because you know that's the source of your comfort is that book. And you know as well as I do, if you got everything you wanted in life right now and you got your nose better in a joint with God about, you'd be a mess. Amen. And that's just the way it runs. But you got to work to get there. You got to work to get there. 
I mean, uh, when you get it for a moment of time and you get close to God and you're in a place, boy, that you're protected and you're safe and all you got is the Spirit of God and nobody trying to pull you off here, your undivided attention is to what God wants you to have, what the man's saying to you from the Word of God, and you know what's the truth and you know it's powerful and it's changing your life and it has the ability to give you what you want. That's what I'm talking about. You see, that's, that's just a little bit of heaven down here. Now, the third crown. This will be found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. It says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, that's money, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being an example and sample to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Christ, shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now this crown of life is the crown that we get for feeding the flock. Now, and here's one you get for uh, deciding to help me in the ministry and help to do what God wants you to do. And you begin to take the oversight for the things in the church that he's given us here uh, in our church. This one deals with you taking a responsibility of teaching the Bible. This is why I prod and push you guys to get into the point in your life where you disciple somebody. This is where I try to get you to step up to the next level in discipleship too. This is why I try to get you to preach down at the mission or I try to get you uh, to do this. This is what you do when you take a volleyball team or a softball team and you do devotions. You're feeding the flock. This is what we're going to talk about, another opportunity, this little rest home down here for these elder folks, just going in and feeding the flock. And God gives you a crown associated with that. It's about your labor in the Word of God and your investment and how it shows when you get promoted to this level, this is where you become invaluable to me. Because one man can only do so much. And a smart pastor, if he's smart, what he'll do is uh, he, will, he, will, he will reproduce himself in other people that not only will he keep doing what he's doing, but he'll get another hundred people out there doing the same thing on the same platform by the same mindset. Then you got the thing cooking. Most preachers never figure that out. They never, they never get to that point. They never understand the value of replicating themselves. And I'll just tell you this, too. I'll tell you this. Uh, everything rises and falls on leadership. You can check the spiritual maturity level of the guy in charge by the spiritual maturity level of his church. It's just that simple. I tell you all the time, you'll never love the Word of God and get excited about it if I don't love it and get excited about it. And you know what? I can tell in a heartbeat when you're not excited about it anymore and you don't love it anymore, but you know what else is true? You'll be able to tell it in me and... 10 seconds. The day I lose my zeal for God and I'm just like everybody else and I just stand up here and say, all right, come on, let's get this over with. The day I look out there and I watched the TV last night and all the closings down there and I said, wow, all the news channels said there's going to be six to nine inches tomorrow. Let's call church off. I had some things I'd rather do anyhow. Hey, I can tell it in you in 10 seconds. You can tell it in me in five seconds. You know why? Because you can't hide things like that. That's why you get to that point in your life where you get excited about it. You get to the point in your life where it gets inside of you. It gets infectious. And what you want to do is you want to let God use you. 
and you want to win somebody to Christ. You want to you disciple them. You want to get every opportunity you can. Why? There's a crown that you can have just by going out and, and teaching somebody the Bible. And you got people when you have an opportunity that says, well, you know, I don't think I want to do that. Okay, I got it. Then that's one crown you won't have. When you get promoted to this level, as I said, this is where you become invaluable. This is where now the ministry really starts hitting all eight cylinders. This is where everything starts to move on this level right here. This is where when you get people, too, that are, have a good ability, and I'll tell you right now, I got some of the best preachers in this country, in this church, and some of them are women. And I'll tell you what, they know their Bible, they know how to lay the Bible out, they know what it is, they can defend it, they can preach it, they can teach it, they can do everything they need to do. You see, that was the church in Antioch. It was filled with men and women who preached and taught the Word of God to work together in ministry of the Word of God. And when you study that passage in Acts chapter 12 and 13, it was all the races. All the races were involved. All the nationalities. There were Jews. There were Gentiles. They were from all walks of life. There was no racial barriers. There was no spiritual hierarchy. It was just a bunch of people who loved the Bible and loved God and got called by God, put in a situation, and they all preached the Word of God. Just people who loved God together and ministered together in ministry to the lost. Now, the fourth crown. Now, there's two places we want to look at this. The first one is James chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Then the other one uh, is Revelation 2.10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Uh, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Now, there's two different places to talk about the same crown because there's two aspects to this, two different concepts. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 deals with the people who have paid the ultimate price for the gospel, and that is them being martyred. They're giving their life for the gospel, and history is filled with those. I, I encourage every Christian to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Get the one edited by Forbish. It's the one that's the, the purest form. But there's plenty of them that are around. Uh, Richard Rumbrandt uh, spent years in a prison in Romania. He wrote a book, Tortured for My Faith, uh, and tremendous thing, price that he paid. Uh, he died in 2001. A, there's a, there's a com contemporary for him. Uh, Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee put out some of the greatest spiritual material you ever found in your life. He, was in a, he spent 20-some years in a Chinese communist prisoner, prisoner war camp. He died uh, in 1872. Uh, he wrote some of the greatest books on the Christian life and prayer uh, that you'll ever find, and they're still printed today. Uh, Harlem Popoff, 15 years in a, in, a, in a communist prison camp in Bulgaria because he wanted to preach the gospel. Tremendous price that was paid. And these people, many of them died. Uh, no one ever knows whatever happened to Watchman Nee. Uh, it, it's, it's incredible stuff. So you find that the first aspect of this crown is for people who pay the ultimate price. But then James chapter 1 verse 12 deals with the uh, persecution you get uh, for your stand uh, on the Word of God and preaching the truth or standing for the truth. Somebody said one time, any, and I don't take away from anything from the martyrs, I certainly don't, but somebody said one time in truth, anybody can die for the Lord. Sometimes it's tougher to live for the Lord than it is to die for Him. And that's a great truth because some, when you die, it's over. 
But boy, going through that drudgery day after day with people who once were your friends who don't do what's right with the Word of God and you've got to take a stand against them or put your tail between your legs and still be their friend. You've got to be able to take a stand for those things. Take the persecution that comes with taking a stand for the truth uh, in the Word of God. Simply living it uh, in this old world uh, is sometimes is much harder than paying the ultimate price. Preaching the gospel, doing the work of the ministry. And uh, you've heard me say it many, many times. Salvation, uh, we talk about God's free gift of salvation. It may be free to you, but it's only free to you because somebody else paid the price for it. The problem is today, we take the salvation of God that he paid the price for, but we're not willing to pay the price to put it out to somebody else. There's a crown with that one. Then the fifth one. Now this is found in two places also, Philippians 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. This is called the crown of rejoicing. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, I, Paul, uh, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope and joy or crown of rejoicing? Uh, Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Philippians 4, 1 says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now this has been called the soul winner's crown. In those two places that I just gave you, Paul's making reference to people that he won to Christ. And he calls them his his crown. Now this one deals with your investment in the life of people to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Proverbs 11.30 says, we haven't got to chapter 11 yet, probably will by the time... Uh, we get another 10 years into this. But he says in Proverbs 11:30, the fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. See? Now, you can get this crown a number of ways. Everybody thinks you've got to be out there knocking on doors and, and uh, witnessing to everybody that you find out there, and that's not necessarily true. Though I think you need to be a witness to everybody. That doesn't mean you evidently always say something. But uh, you, can, you, can, you can get this crown by praying for people that they might get saved. You can get this crown by witnessing to people. You can get this crown by passing out tracts, like we do down in the, when we go out, the teams go out. You know, I, my, my vision is, and I, I, many times I'll be down there and I'll be driving around, and I'll see one of your tracts that somebody you gave to somebody and somebody threw it away. I never stop and pick it up. I never do. My first tendency years ago would be to stop and not let it go to waste, but then I realized that God's Word never returns void. See? I realized that God may have had that old guy throw it down there because he knew that guy didn't want it, but somebody else is going to come walking down there and see that thing and pick it up and may be what he needs, you see? I don't get into those things. Once I pass it out, it's God's deal. If a guy wants to throw it in the gutter, let him throw it in the gutter. God will pay the price for it with God, but God will still use it someplace along the line. I knew one time a missionary, a guy showed up at his mission station, and uh, he had one of the tracks that they had passed out. And that track passed out, said, told how to get saved, and said, if you get saved, come and come to so our mission station, and, and we'll give you a Bible. And he got saved, and he knew where the mission station was. He walked 20 miles to that mission station and told that missionary, missionary man, I, I got this track, and I got saved, and I'd like to have a Bible. 
Missionary was astounded. He says, who gave you the track? And he says, no one gave me the track, missionary man. I was out watching my goats and out watching my flocks. And he says, and I was standing there. And he says, I, the wind was blowing. And about a, a ways away, I saw something blowing across the thing that caught my attention. And it was colored. And I walked over to pick it up. And it was his track. Now, see, somebody threw that track away. And God took that track and blew it right where that guy was. I don't mess with those kinds of things. Once you put it out, then you claim the principle. You may never see on this side, but I guarantee you, we get to heaven, boy, there'll be some old homeless guy down there underneath the thing, and he's proud, and he don't want to get saved, and, you know, he's reading that track, and he takes that thing and sits down there, boy, and he gets cold, and he gets thinking, and the Holy Spirit of God starts working on him, and, boy, about that time, sometime 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, he looks at that thing, and he starts reading that thing, and the Holy Spirit of God starts working on him. Oh, about 4.30 in the morning, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, boy, and he gets saved. You never know about it. You never hear about it. You never see it till you get home to the judgment seat of Christ. Ah, that's, a, that's how you get them crowned, boy. I told you before, there's three aspects to soul winning. There's a sowing the Word of God, there's a watering, that's praying, and then you get to reap sometimes. Somebody else sometimes gets to reap. But it's being aware of the circumstances and the opportunities that people that God puts in our lives to give them the gospel, using all that we do in this church to get the message out. We do it in softball. We do it in volleyball. We do it in our social events. We do it in our special Bible series like coming up Thursday. There'll be people that'll show up that wouldn't come to a normal Bible study that will get a chance to hear the truth. In volleyball, there's people that are looking for the truth. They're looking for a good church. They're looking for somebody teaching the Bible, and they find it through volleyball. Volleyball just come. They come out to think God looking at them, and they're thinking they're going out to play volleyball. God's saying, well, you're going to play some volleyball, but the reason I got I want to get you where you get the truth. That's how it works. That's how it works. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, why crowns? What's the point to it all? I've actually had people say to me over the years, well, I don't really want a crown, don't really need any crowns. I'm just glad I'm going to be with the Lord. Well, I, a couple of things on that you probably want to consider. First of all, no crown here means no inheritance over there. So you want to make sure that you understand that little concept. And the second thing you want to realize is this. What do those crowns represent? Now, the judgment seat of Christ on many levels is many aspects and many things. But one of the things that it does, it truly reveals. And I don't know if you ever thought about it this way. But these crowns at the judgment seat of Christ really reveal every aspect of our Christian life that needs to be surrendered to the Lord. I don't know if you saw that. You see, it's real easy to mask it all down here and uh, play the game and uh, uh, learn the right answers and hide behind the circumstances and play the victim and make all kinds of excuses. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, that in that day that God will judge the secrets of men according to His gospel. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians three thirteen that every work shall be made manifest for the day that the judgment seat of Christ shall declare it. Now, when this judgment, these five crowns, Notice there's not seven. You would think there would be seven because seven's God's perfect number. Why did he only give us five? Because five in the Bible is the number of death. And these crowns go to the fact that Christ died for you that you might have the ability to do what God wants you to do to earn these crowns. Now, I don't know if you ever saw it or not, but <clears throat> these crowns, we're getting them, each one of them, as you stand there that day, will reveal a different aspect of your complete of a complete child of God in our life given over to God for His service. I mean, the first crown is the incorruptible crown. That's going to prove, if you get that, that you actually did separate yourself from the world. You won't be able to hide and say one thing. The crown will prove whether you did or whether you didn't. 
The second crown that you'll have an opportunity to get will be the one that, do you really love him? The love of his appearing. The crown of rejoicing. And you're going to have to, it won't be a thing then that you can say, oh, I can't. Or when I say, boy, wouldn't it be great the Lord come back? Everybody goes, amen. But you really don't mean it. See, the crown in that day will be the proof that you did mean that. The third one, about teaching the word of God, feeding the flock. You get that one and hand it out to you, and you don't have to pretend like you do or say you do or walk around and strut around like you do. That crown will prove whether you do or whether you don't. The fourth one will be the crown of your suffering or your martyrdom. And we all pretend we suffer for the Lord. We all pretend that we go through great things. Most of the things that we go through, we go through because of our own stupidity. Very few of us go through anything because, and I know it's true in my life, very few things I've ever went through that I went through because I was the victim. I went through because I was the perpetrator. So you can't count that. You can't count that. But if you get that crown, or that crown gets handed to you, it'll be known in that day that you stood for the truth and you paid the price. A lot of people like to pretend. They like to pretend. You always had soldiers that way in the military. When they get on leave, they'd always run to the Army surplus store. There was one or a couple of around every camp. They'd always buy all the medals and put them on their chest so they'd walk downtown, but they think they'd been somewhere and done something. Christians do the same thing. The fifth one would be the soul-winning crown. You get that one, brother, it'll, it'll, all, it, it'll prove to the fact that you cared about people. You see, the, the crowns are so important to the judgment seat of Christ because it's going to be the thing that each one of them represents a different part of your life that needs to be turned over to the Lord. And when you look at all five of them, it's all because of Christ died for you on the cross. You stand there and don't get any crowns at all. It's going to be a stark realism to everybody in the assembled universe that there wasn't one thing you cared about down here. You see, this is what our lives should be right now. The judgment seat of Christ is built on a concept of honoring God by giving back to Him based on what He has given to you. That's really our Christian life and what it should be. Now look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 9, 10, 11. It says, And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him and sat on the throne and worshiped Him and liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure uh, they are all, and they are, were, and were created. Now, you see that? The context of that, if you know the book of Revelation, that's after the rapture of the church in chapter 4, verse 1. That's up in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. It's real simple. Verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. You see, God gives me the crown, five of them. I can get five of those crowns. God gives them to me. That represents my total consecration in this life to Him based on what He's done for me. And God says, this is your reward. But it's not my reward to keep. Because the only way I got those is because ultimately it all goes back to what he did for me. Amen. So at the judgment seat of Christ, he gives me those five crowns that represent what I did for him. 
But ultimately, I've got to give the honor and glory to him because he is worthy. And so I take what he's given me and recognizing that the only reason I got him is because ultimately what he did for me and we lay him back at his feet. He gives them to me. I give the honor and glory to back to him whom it deserves to go. So one by one. Before the assembled universe of Christianity and all the saved people, all through the Bible, we come up and cast those crowns at his feet and give back to him who is worthy all the glory that he's given to us. Each crown you lay at his feet will represent the area of our lives that you and I separated ourselves from this old world, consecrated ourselves, surrendered ourselves to him. What a thought. What if in that day when you and I have absolutely nothing to lay at his feet? Nothing. I mean nothing. We've thrown our Christian lives and the opportunities that God has given us away. We played the game. We never took it real serious. We just did what the minimum that we had to do. Never one day in our lives have we ever give up anything for him. It was all about us. And whatever we did give him, it was only out of our convenience and never out of our suffering. Boy, back in your hymnal on page 418, there's a great hymn called, Must I Go in Empty-Handed? And it simply says, Must I go and empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him, must I empty Handed, go. He ain't going to care about how many baskets and points you made in a basketball game. He's not going to care how many soccer goals you made. He's not going to care if you hit the ball over the fence. He's not going to care about any of those things. All he's going to look at in that day and care about that day are those five crowns. And we stand there after all he did for us and what he gave to us, and now we have them. We don't get to keep those rewards. We got an inheritance coming, but we take the crowns that he gave us. And we recognize that the only reason we got him is ultimately what he did for me. And then we lay him at his feet. Wow, what a day that's going to be. And the answer is, yes, there'll be many of God's people who will have nothing in their hand to bring. One of the attributes of getting God's wisdom and understanding and keeping it is the insight that you get about this coming day. You don't ever hear it preached anymore, but it's a coming day. And one by one, we'll walk up to that throne with the crowns that God gave us, the abilities to live for Him, and one by one, we'll lay them at His feet. And there'll be no excuse to be able to be given because the crowns will say it all. For the faithful Christian, it'll be your final promotion to glory, your coronation day. For the faithless Christian, it will be your promotion day too. But as Proverbs 3, verse 35 says, the wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. And brother, that's one of the greatest studies in the Bible, why a fool is not demoted, he's still premoted. Incredible study in your Bible. It'll be the little guys, not the big shots of Christianity. It'll be the common, ordinary guy and the gal who just quietly does the work of God without any fanfare, without any limelight, without any glory down here. 
No, 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 no applauding crowds, no spotlights, no TV cameras rolling. Just doing it because they love the Lord. They love the Lord. One time there was a football player. And he played on the offense. He was the guy who would block when they were going to run the ball. They were in a big game. And they were down by uh, they were down by three points or four points. A field goal wouldn't do it. They had to get a touchdown. And uh, the ball was on a thirty yard line. And they got out of the huddle and they got in the huddle. And the quarterback said, "We're going to run the ball. We're going to go it over there. Everybody block for him. This is the last play. We got to get it done. And uh, this is our last shot. We don't do this. We're going to go home and defeat." So they lined up on the line, and the quarterback snapped the ball, and he backed up to fake the pass, and then he handed it off to the tailback. The tailback went around to the, uh, the, the left side, and the, the blocking guy was out in front of him, and he knocked one guy out of the way. And this is just before he got to the goal line, at about the 10-yard line. Three, big line, three big other guys were coming after him, and that old blocker put himself out there and stretched himself out and took all three of those guys out from the knees and just took all three of them out, and that guy went in the end zone, made the touchdown. I mean, the place went crazy. The running back spiked the ball, did his little dance. All the team players ran in there, picked him up, and put him on his shoulders. Everybody was screaming and yelling. They had won the game, and the, and the end zone was chaos where the big touchdown was made. That old blocker was back there with three big old bodies on him, busted and bloodied up where he took all three of those guys out. And he kind of pushes them off, and they get up, and he looks up at the end zone and see all that's going on over there, and he gets on one knee, and he's hurt. He's been neck nailed good. I mean, he had about 1,200 pounds just fall onto him when he blocked for that guy to get in the end zone. And he kind of gets on one knee, and the air's knocked out of him, you know, and he's got bloods here, and he's got dirt everywhere, and he's got dirt in his mouth and clogged in his face mask. And he gets on one knee, and he looks over at the sidelines, and there's the coach. The coach isn't looking at the end zone. He's not celebrating because of the great touchdown that was made. He's totally oblivious to what's going on in the end zone, though he knows he won the game. When that old boy gets up on one knee and looks over to the sideline, that coach is transfixed on that blocker. And that old boy looks over and that coach looks at him and smiles and gives him a wink and gives him a thumbs up. He knows who was responsible for the celebration in the end zone. In the ministry, I don't want the glory and the limelight and the TV cameras. Nothing interests me a bit. Now, when we get home to heaven and all the hopaloo and all that's going around, that'll be great and it'll be a fun time. But there's only one thing I want. I want the coach of my life when this game of life is over. I want him to look me eyeball to eyeball, and all I want is a wink and a thumbs up and out of his mouth, well done, a good and faithful service. You blocked the opposition. You did the job. You took them out. You took the stand. You never compromised, and we won the game. Glory to God, that's all what it's about, folks. It's about the limelight and all the big stuff and all the big things. It's about staying in that line and blocking. It's about running that offense and defense where you take out the opposition that the ball can get in the end zone. And all that you want to hear in that day. All you want to hear in that day. You know, when I was in the Army, I actually saw a guy get the Congressional Medal of Honor. He had won it in 1968 in Vietnam. 
there was a special forces sergeant attached to an A-team that was way out in, in, a, in an A-camp, and uh, they got overrun. And uh, he, uh, uh, all of his team was wounded, and, and, and he was the only one that wasn't, and he got wounded two times in the process. And what he did was, is he manned a six, an M60 machine gun and had, a, and he called in artillery on his own thing. They were all over the place, and he called in artillery on it. And for two and a half hours, he held off the, a whole company of NVA while the choppers got in and got the crew out. And then the gunships finally showed up and gave him support. And then he got out. And that day, I'll never forget it. It was at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, and there might have been sixteen, maybe two thousand troops out there at attention. And uh, there was th four generals and, uh, and uh, three, light, uh, three colonels and two light colonels. And, I mean, it was an incredible thing. And a major read the citation order and told over that thing. And I thought to myself, you know, when they stood there, boy, and they called his name out, and it was like, it was like all you could see was ranks of soldiers, all dressed the same way, all the same clothes on. You couldn't tell them apart. And down that line, when they called his name, boy, he come out and marched up there and come before that thing, boy, and that general took that Congressional Medal of Honor, put it around his neck, and then the general stood back, and the general saluted him. You see, once you win the Congressional Medal of Honor, no, no officer, you salute no officer ever again. Everybody from the president down now salutes you. And that general stood back and took that thing and saluted him, boy, and he saluted back. And I'll tell you, years later I thought about that when I got saved and got right with God, and I thought, what a day that'll be. What a day that'll be, brother, when the Lord you calls your name out and you walk down them ranks and he takes that crown and puts it on your head and he steps back and salutes you, brother, Holy glory to God, brother. I'm about to have a Pentecostal fit, man. What a day that'll be. But you see, that's, that's what it is. You recognizing what he did for you, giving it all for him now. He gives it to you, the judgment seat of Christ, and then you stand there and say, yes, sir. Give it back to you, Lord, because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have been here and I couldn't have done any old thing. Glory and honor is worthy to you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, for these good people today.